As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. I'm pleased to say that alongside us here at the global headquarters of the International Monetary Fund in Washington, D.C., Mohamed Al-Aryan, Bloomberg Opinion columnist and Queen's College Cambridge president. Mohamed, good morning. Good morning. Can we stop calling it a banking crisis? This was not a banking crisis. Tell me why this wasn't a banking crisis. A banking crisis is a crisis of the banking system. This was a banking tremor. A few banks that were caught offside and badly supervised went down. The big banks are just fine, and we're seeing that. In fact, the big banks are benefiting from this because they've got two things. Not only are they viewed as safe, but they've got diversified business models. And you saw what happened to FIC. You saw that suddenly it is the narrow bank that are riskies, and it's the universal banks that are resilient. If it wasn't a crisis, why do you think that officials needed to use the systemic risk exception? I think it crept up on them, and they just went a little bit too far. I understand why they did it. I suspect I would have done it too. Right? Do you but think they pose systemic risk? Um, I think the deposit run and the speed of the deposit run at, at First Republic scared them a lot. But this was a failure of supervision. We have to understand that this was a failure of supervision. We have enough evidence now to show the extent to which the Fed failed in, in the supervision of First Republic. So let's say Absolutely, this is not a banking crisis. This didn't rise to some kind of 2008 or even, uh, you know, potentially that's a 1980s type scenario. But is it a credit crunch that we're going to see evolve? Yeah, so we have, we're going through a major transition which has made some business models incredibly stressed, incredibly stressed. Um, and we're going to see that. We are now focusing on the banks. You just wait to see all the levered finance that has to refinance itself. We talked a little bit about commercial real estate, but it goes well beyond this. When you change the interest rate paradigm as quickly as we did, you will catch people off sides. And some people will be able to get back on side. Other people have business models that doesn't allow to get back on side. Now, why am I saying this? Because the, some of the smaller banks have that issue. They have higher funding costs, their deposits have become more flighty, and they're going to have to contract their loan books. And they are making loans that the big banks will not make. So yes, we are going to have a reduction in credit contraction. We've got to talk about the Federal Reserve. Raghav Rajan, a good friend of yours, I know, was fantastic yesterday, and I wish we were alongside him. He was talking about some of the blame lying at the feet of the Federal Reserve and the unwillingness of this institution that we're sitting in this morning to call out monetary policy officials for their role in some of the instability. Where would you stand on that now, Mohammed? So I think it's very important to keep our central banks accountable. They are very important. As you know, I'm a huge fan of central banks. And when I criticize the Fed, it really hurts me. But it's important to have some accountability in the system. Why? 
because that is the basis of political independence. And no one wants to erode the political independence of central banks. But central banks have to own their mistakes and have to learn from their mistakes to continue to enjoy something that is very precious and very important for the system as a whole, which is the ability to make policy without having to go to Congress. One Fed official this week, in the last week at least, said the move from zero to close to 5% in about 12 months wasn't the problem with the banking system. You've talked about a failure of bank management. Do you think that has anything to do with it? A decade of zero interest rates and then going from zero to five like that? So we've had three stages of this tragedy. Stage one was too loose for too long. Remember, in March, when the inflation print was 7.5%, the Fed was still injecting liquidity into the economy. That's March of last year. We should have started tightening policy significantly a year ago. The second problem is that after this whole long period, the Fed mischaracterized inflation. So we lost nine months of possible policy adjustments. When you start late, you end up going higher and staying there for longer. That is the logic. That is why timely policy responses are so important. So of course, this interest rate cycle has been mishandled. Of course, it has had an impact on what we are seeing in terms of not only financial turbulence, but also what we're going to see in terms of economic turbulence. At your Cambridge, there is a spectacular stained glass window of a Venn diagram. It is just a remarkable stained glass window. There are 42 circles here at the IMF, and they're trying to find a Venn diagram of politics, economics, debate that gets to a common theme. I can't find the common theme this time around. What is it? So I was surprised when in the six o'clock hour, you said there's all these issues and there's no common theme. That's absolutely a common theme. And the common theme is a world of deficient aggregate supply. We have gone from a world of deficient aggregate demand, that was the story after the global financial crisis, to a world of deficient aggregate supply. Right. You get inflation, you get interest rate hikes, you get more inequality, both nationally and globally. Right. And I could go down the list and if you under-respond, if you under-react to that shift, then you start triggering all sorts of issues. Brilliant. There. But the heart of the matter is, and Ambrose Evans Pritchard absolutely nails this with a neo-Vixellian essay today in The Telegraph, the bottom line is there's too much money out there and not enough investable opportunities on a global basis. We've been this way for a while. Is it a generational issue where we're never going to escape this trap? of just too much money chasing not enough constructive ideas? So we certainly have too much money. What I would um, love to discuss with him is the notion that we don't have enough investment opportunities. We are going through major transition. The energy transition is a major investment opportunity. Let's talk about the market failures that mean that we haven't been able to take advantage of this important window in terms of investments. And we can have a long discussion about um, what the U.S. has done, and I know it upsets the Europeans, but they're right. They're trying to address market failures yeah. in order to have more private-public partnerships to invest in an area that is I, critically underinvested. Brilliant idea. Can he run the Port Authority of I New look, York? Look, you know, get us a tunnel. Mohammed is raising a really, really important issue. This is not with the benefit of hindsight. We said it at the time. Germany and the European countries who had the luxury of incredibly exceptionally low interest rates didn't make the move.
to invest in a way that they should have done. Well, the way I would, in Davos, it's simple. There's all these fancy placards and marketing ideas of infrastructure and, you know, McKinsey-like 80-page documents on development, and it just hasn't happened. Do you don't remember when Wolfgang Schäuble left the German finance ministry and they all stood outside and did that black zero as if it was something to celebrate? It was a total failure of policy over the last 10 years. Well, this is this word austerity, which really hasn't come up here. And economic policy as well. Are we going to see austerity in Britain again? I mean, within the shocks that we see now, they're so, Britain is so comfortable with austerity, aren't they? No, unfortunately, Britain has become comfortable with low growth. That's a problem. <laughs> you know, we have three issues. And, 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 <clears throat> and with my friends, people you know very well, Michael Spence and Gordon Brown, we've been working on this for a while. We have three issues. One is we have inadequate growth models, mod growth models. We have to rethink how we grow. Two, we have inadequate domestic policy implementation. And three, we have inadequate global policy coordination. Those are the three big areas. Now, there are solutions to all three. That's the good news. But we've got to focus the discussion. Mohamed, well said. And thank you for being so generous with your time. Well, thank it's you fantastic for as always. Thank you, sir. Mohammed Al Arian. <music> Joining us now is Ken Leon, the Director of Equity Research at CFRA. Ken, you've had about 10, 20 minutes to go through some of these numbers. What stands out for you? Uh, these banks are not only resilient, but they're making money. So what we did see, in, particularly in the consumer area, is strength in the private and the wealth management credit card was flat. Um, capital markets are strong. And, and I think maybe uh, the conversation has been missing this is that we're going to see these banks do better ahead. We hit the trough. Um, so I, I would say the worries about the large banks is over. Uh, they're resilient. And even if the and this is the first time too, deposits are down, but loans are up. Uh, that's the really the first time that metric changed in, in maybe six quarters. Perhaps that's a good thing. And quietly, uh, J.P. Morgan is offering you, John, a 5% one-year CD rate. So even if the deposits go out, they're quietly taking money from smaller right. banks. Hey, Ken, you've been following this for decades. And the tone changes. You can go back and look from annual report letters from 15 years ago that are embarrassing and they're vogue. Is the vogue now for these banks to talk down their scope and scale? I look at the revenue pop in J.P. Morgan, and I would suggest his government affairs people are telling Mr. Diamond, shh, don't let anyone know. Are they almost too successful? You're spot on. And, and the, the issue here is really the messaging and that it's not that we have too much capital and we're restricted because there's going to be regulatory costs and more regulation as relates to holding capital, as especially exiting Basel III and GAIN. So the story here really is uh, making sure investors are comfortable that they can get dividend growth and buybacks at levels commensurate with the last two or three years. And that's going to be really the debate they have behind closed doors with Michael Barr and the bank supervisors on the stress test. Not this year, but next year. So that's the important thing for investors is knowing that these banks are not only resilient and profitable, but they can get a total return on their investment.
Ken, I want to build on what Tom is saying, because he's absolutely right. We're talking about credit crises and the potential for some sort of fragility. And we're talking about J.P. Morgan expecting to bring in $81 billion of net interest income this year, which is far above what people were expecting. They are minting money. At what point are we expecting some of the discussion from the C-suite to be gloomier than perhaps it really is, to perhaps divert a little bit of attention from what's going on in the bottom line? The bottom line speaks for itself, and that's what moves markets. Uh, Gerard was correct that we may have hit peak net interest uh, margins. But looking back over the last five years of the large banks, only J.P. Morgan was able to grow net interest income from 2017, mostly because they expanded their loan activity and their book. Um, but overall, the picture is good. And that was our point in the middle of March is that uh, obviously there was tremendous concerns about financial stability, uh, but it was a great time as some of the large banks have sold off uh, and, and we took advantage. And I think the capital market still uh, can give you a strong punch in the second half of the year, uh, because right now we're at the trough in terms of underwriting uh, and also mergers and acquisitions. You know, Ken Leon's dead on, and Lisa, I think this is so important. Max Abelson tearing this apart for Top Live right now. This is a surreal conversation, and Mr. Leon and Cassidy touch upon this. Their return on equity is 18%. They are minting money. Shh, don't let anyone okay. know. So how much is this a J.P. Morgan story, and how much is this a broader banking story? And can that really will ultimately be the question through the rest of this year as perhaps people parse the differential between the J.P. Morgans of the world and all of the, I don't want to say Silicon Valley valleys of the world, but perhaps the First Republic banks of the world? There's two iterations here. The, the first one is if you're diversified and you have large capital markets businesses, you're going to outperform. The second part of this is really related as the, you look at not only the super regionals, but smaller banks. They have a narrower uh, total asset mix, a higher percentage of commercial real estate loans and commercial loans. And the consumer will probably slow down a bit in the second half of the year. Uh, we saw that in the J.P. Morgan results on credit card revenue. Hey, Ken, this was wonderful. <laughs> wonderful to hear from you. Ken Leon there of CFRA. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. What we're going to do here is move to the banking earnings, but right now stay in a very delicate uh, discussion. This is a bilat. That's what they call it down there. We're going to have a bilateral right now. That's where two 
parties that really don't want to talk to each other talk to each other. We're going to do that with Valdis Dombrowski, European uh, Commission Executive uh, Vice President, the former Prime Minister of his Latvia. The bilats you go into now across the Atlantic Ocean with select American officials, is the tension normal back to your prime ministership with Latvia in the heart of the GFC? Or is there something new this time about transatlantic bilat tension? Uh, uh, good morning. Well, first of all, I would uh, highlight that uh, there is a very strong transatlantic uh, cooperation. We are strategic allies, and especially in uh, times like this, where we are confronted by uh, Russia's aggression uh, against Ukraine, mm -hmm. by war on European soil, uh, we uh, uh, need to work uh, together with US and with the entire uh, democratic uh, world. So, and uh, I would say that this uh, cooperation, both in terms of uh, uh, supporting Ukraine, putting sanctions against uh, Russia, is uh, uh, is right. uh, uh, very strong and uh, very good. Uh, on um, uh, uh, trade side, obviously, uh, we are uh, also having very extensive agenda. This was uh, subject of, of some of my meetings also uh, uh, yesterday, and there we are still working, for example, on some of the discriminatory aspects of the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. But once again, we are constructively engaged with uh, U.S. Uh, authorities and hope uh, to the extent possible uh, solve those issues. From Latvia up to Estonia, over to a Finland, and your world and all of our worlds have changed here with Finland joining NATO. To me, it was just a lifetime shock to see that. How do the political dialogues you're in every day change given the shock of this war in the sh of Finland simply joining, moving from its independence and joining Europe? Uh, well, uh, uh, I think uh, as regards Finland, it obviously was a logical uh, choice. If you live next to the uh, aggressive uh, empire, uh, you need to seek uh, stronger protection. And that's what Finland uh, did uh, with uh, joining NATO. And hopefully uh, Sweden will be able to join uh, soon as well. And it definitely strengthens the security in entire uh, Baltic Sea region. Commissioner, you're always diplomatic. I would suggest that you've had to spend the week putting out fires. Fires started from by someone else. I would like to understand how the Europeans would respond if the US administration turned around and said that they don't want to get caught up in crises that aren't ours. What would you say back to that? Uh, well, as I was uh, saying at the beginning of the uh, interview, uh, uh, when we are uh, uh, confronted with major challenges, we are better off if we work together as EU-US, that we strengthen our trans uh, transatlantic alliance. Have you told the French president that? Uh, well, uh, 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 clearly the position of the EU is uh, very clear on this. As I said, uh, we, uh, uh, EU and US are uh, strategic allies, and we, uh, especially in current confrontational geopolitical situation, uh, we uh, need to work together. I get the feeling, and this is my assessment, and you can correct me by all means, that you're all underplaying the tension between the European Union and the US right now publicly. Whenever I speak to someone from the US administration or the European Union, I get the same story. We all need to work together. What I actually see as an observer is a race for subsidies in the United States. The European Union racing to get its act together to do the same thing. It's a real tension starting to emerge. How are you going to resolve that? How do you actually truly work together when the US is spending a lot of time saying, let's build in America, make America, and then buy America. How are you going to resolve that? 
Uh, well, on uh, this, and if we are to discuss specifically U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, EU has been uh, very uh, clear since the very beginning. So we definitely welcome the uh, climate ambition of the Inflation Reduction Act, and the U.S. is uh, also uh, uh, working uh, on uh, these goals. But at the same time, we have serious concerns about discriminatory aspects in Inflation Reduction Act. We have set up the de dedicated EU-U.S. task force to work on those issues, and indeed we are raising uh, uh, with uh, these issues uh, also bilaterally with uh, U.S. Uh, administration and uh, trying to solve them. The previous administration was heavily criticised for its approach to trade. Everybody would come on TV publicly. They had no problem saying it and criticising the Trump administration. Is there any difference, any daylight whatsoever, between this administration and the last one on trade? Can you well, identify one specific piece of daylight difference between what this administration is doing and what the last one did? Well, uh, first of all, uh, with this administration, we were able to uh, park several long-standing disputes like Airbus-Boeing dispute, like uh, uh, dispute related uh, to steel and aluminium uh, tariffs. Right now, we are working on the global steel and aluminium What's the status of that, Commissioner? Well, uh, just yesterday, uh, I was discussing this with U.S. Trade Representative, uh, Ambassador Tai, and... Uh, 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 we, uh, there is a very intensive, very uh, constructive engagement, and we are working with a deadline of October this year in mind. We talk a lot about the relationship between the U.S. and Europe, both when it comes to trade, but also when it comes to military. We've been talking about these leaks that are very sensitive from the national security uh, of the United States. Does that change your relationship at all with sharing information or doing business with the U.S.? Well, uh, once again, I must uh, emphasize that uh, uh, in a, a situation where we uh, see uh, uh, aggressive policy of Russia, I would say increased ambitions of authoritarian regimes, it's important that the democratic world works uh, uh, together. So, yes, there are problems, there are difficulties, but uh, we need to be able to... Uh, to uh, uh, discuss, uh, uh, overcome them, and find joint uh, solutions as a response uh, to current geopolitical situation. Varys, you're very kind to give us so much of your time. Thank you for being with us, Commissioner. We appreciate it. Varys Dombrovskis there of the European Commission. This is always a joy. Joining us now, Lupin Rahman, with PIMCO, head of the EM, of course, her service to the International Monetary Fund for years, and far more importantly, a student of the ramifications of the central banker to the world, Jerome Powell, in EM sovereign debt. How big of an influence is Mr. Powell right now on Bolivia, on Ghana in the news today, and frankly on other larger, more successful EM economies? Well, the Fed cycle is extremely important for major emerging markets, particularly those in the investment grade portion of the asset class. But you correctly point out that for the frontier markets that are really facing credit stresses, relatively, you know, the, the impact of the Fed is relatively a lot smaller than you would expect. It's smaller than you'd expect, but the fact is there's a multidimensional crisis in EM now. In your study of history at LSE of EM, how is this distress, this tension different than what we've seen back to 1992 and frankly back before that? Well, I take a slightly different view. I actually think the crisis is more in developed markets than emerging markets for, for the first time in a long time. In EM, you have inflation coming down, you have growth essentially 
compared to the... And you mentioned Korea got out front with rate increases. Absolutely. Uh, Korea, Brazil, Chile, the list is endless. And not only that, they've avoided deep recessions, whereas we have the the kind of soft landing versus hard landing debate in, in developed markets. I think that, you know, when we're thinking about crises in EM, it really is a select number of frontier markets that don't form the aggregate part of emerging markets that we actually invest in. And it's important to bear that in mind um, for countries like Mexico, like Brazil, like South Africa, like Indonesia, we're extremely constructive. This uh, this new phase within their economies, particularly as they're trying to come out of this tightening cycle, is going to be very constructive for EM investors. Lupin, you said this is one of mo the most exciting IMF meetings you've ever been at. Why? Well, this is the first time we really have a lot of discussions on debt restructurings and, importantly, the role of the multi-development banks and, the, and China in debt restructurings. And so, so this time around, you know, we're seeing a lot of debate and discussion, some pushback from China. It's the first time we're really seeing negotiations related to the MDB's senior status in debt restructurings. And the recent um, global workshop that the IMF held last week essentially highlighted that the MDBs will be committing more grant financing uh, for some of these re debt restructuring countries. How much is what you were first talking about connected to this very deeply? That right now the crisis is not in the developing world as much when it comes to the rates picture. It's much more in the developed world. In frankly, U.S., which is the biggest market for a lot of these debt instruments. How much is that coloring the conversation and the willingness to sort of uh, allow things to sort of just go on and losses to gather? at a time that's somewhat fraught for the developed world? So I think that, you know, the, the, the impact that high inflation in the developed economies um, has on these discussions is important, but it really isn't the front and center when it comes to the debt negotiations. The debt restructuring issues are long-term. It really strikes at the heart of how the Paris Club, China, India, the GCC, Saudi Arabia are going to work together in future debt restructuring. So these are longer term issues that I think all parties recognize the importance of really putting front and center. Are you impressed with how the IMF has handled some of these discussions? Yes, I think the, the IMF has played its part in terms of being the negotiator between all of these actors. Um, there are elements that you know, the IMF needs to focus on in terms of its lending into arrears and lending assurances criteria. It's really important for countries like Sri Lanka, like Ghana, who went through balance of payments crises but need financing from the IMF immediately and in a very short period of time for the IMF to really iron out some of the these creases when it comes to their lending into arrears and assurances practices. On a market desk with your three Bloomberg terminals in front of you, Lupin, what do you want from China to signal from China that they will do Western restructuring? What's the next step? The FD, Robin Wigglesworth, has done a great job on this. Our end current, I think, has been strong on this as well. There has to be a China process of restructuring. What's it look like? So we're getting a lot more clarity on what China's key issues are in these debt restructuring 
And essentially the first is the seniority of the multilateral development banks. And to some extent, the recent announcement on grants has overcome that. The second is domestic debt restructuring. And this is a very valid concern from the Chinese. Many countries that are coming for debt restructurings have very high levels right. of domestic debt, which need to be addressed. But essentially, governments find it extremely difficult to impose haircuts on their population and as well look after the, the stability of their banking sector. This is an issue that needs to uh, have a lot more work behind it to really get a, a handle on it. We don't have the time for this. We go on for three hours. Can you do a panel with me today? What are you doing at 1130 uh, this morning? The heart of it to me, as Rishi Sharma mentioned the other day, is the rescue culture. Is the rescue culture where everybody has to be pain-free, is it seeped over to your world of sovereign debt workout? Do we want everybody to be painless? in working towards haircuts or uh, extended duration? I, I think that the EM world is no stranger to haircuts and actually a very painful restructurings. Um, we've got a long history of very low recoveries in some countries and very high recoveries in others. I think that you know what, where, where we're going to is uh, a shift from the focus on private bondholders to the official sector in terms of how the official sector should behave and coordinate themselves in resolving debt restructuring. So really with the collective action clauses, reforms that we saw over the last decade and a half, the private sector really is doing its part. Um, and the issues are much more in the official and the official bilateral sector. Always been the case. The official sector doesn't like taking losses, Tom. You know that. And look at what yeah. happened in Europe. With the I just think there, I, I repeatedly, wonder, same thing. Is the tension with China going to impinge best practices on a new 21st century well, IMF? And this has been a big concern. Also, what are the rules of the road? I mean, can China say, all right, we didn't get paid back, so we're going to take your port? You know what I mean? And we're going to take your, well, your shipping line. The jargon we're take, for I mean, this, seriously, this is one of the yeah, big issues. The jargon for this is they go, well, we're into meetings on technicalities. I don't know what IMF technicalities are. Lupin's expert at that. Technicalities. <laughs> technicalities. We're just hearing about that. You know, yeah. Careers. You know, fascinating stuff. Is it is fascinating. It I actually, is. like, some of these meetings are really fraught, and everyone talks about it. It's like, oh, yeah, we're coming to an agreement. And then you talk to them behind the scenes, and they're like, oh, it's a nightmare. Yeah, they, they make it publicly, <laughs> yeah. they make it a bit of a snooze. Yeah, I exactly. Admit, for me, it's, 100%. Been, you know, it's been pretty sleepy, but you know behind the tension the behind the scenes, big time. Significant. Lupin, this was great. Thank you. Thank you so Lupin much. Lupin Raman there of PIMCO on the latest from the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank Spring Meetings. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.
We have the advantage, as John and I try to do at Davos or at Jackson Hole, to finish strong with a qualified individual. Eric Nielsen carried the optimism of Europe at Unicredit in the darkest days of a number of years ago. He joins us today with the perspective of his public service at the IMF on the Turkey and Russia watch as well. You were in the trenches year ago, years ago of IMF duties. Is the IMF focused right now on fixing these debt crises or are they completely distracted by the therapy that Lisa was talking about moments ago? They feel distracted. I, I share the sentiment you said. It's a, I have been to probably 50 of these meetings uh, over the years and I, have, I cannot recall such a division between what you, the IMF writes about, what they talk about, what the official sector talk about, and then you go out of this, this building and meet in the private rooms with private investors and other private sector people, and they all talk about Russia, China, and then to Europe, right? Sorry, uh, US, China, and, and the war, and then Europe. Here, in here, we're talking about we need to do some fiscal retrenchment, we need some monetary tightening, inflation a little bit too high, and then we were lucky, lucky, we had a financial mini-crisis, so we can talk about financial stability, but it's not really a problem, as we can have heard, and I agree. But that's what they talk about. They don't talk about the elephant in the room, that fundamentally, economic policy of 30 years is out the window. We are not, no longer having free trade, we no longer have beliefs in, in free capital movements, we, don't, we now are talking about industrial policies, sanctions, but they're not leading the discussion here. And this institution was meant to be the very embodiment of that push. That's right. So what's gone wrong? That's a good question. Uh, to, let, let, let's first recognize that they're in a difficult spot. They have shareholders on both sides of the debate, right? But, uh, and they don't have a history of having criticized the US and China. You can't find it in the back, back right? That doesn't happen. And these are the two big issues, right? And they don't really talk about it, right? This is a, so um, they need to be brave. They should have been brave. They were not here. I, I, I think they missed their opportunity. Tom talked about we, this repeatedly yeah. through the week. Tom, you brought it up so many times. We can't, the absence of China just hasn't Well, the absence of up. China here, and, and, the, and you know, long ago and far away, the managing director told me on her trip, they at least began to engage discussion. And the word they use, which you have lived, Dr. Nielsen, is technicalities. Yeah. Is this going to be a process forward of technicalities, or is it going to be real leadership by Secretary Yellen, the managing director, by the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and indeed by the leadership uh, in Beijing? This is a, a, I, I don't know the answer what, how they would do it, but they're not there now, right? It is, um, it's a, it, it, there are two good chapters from the IMF on, on sort of geopolitics, right? There's one in the WIO and one in the Financial Stability Report. They are about the effect on foreign direct investment this could have and estimate what it is. There's no policy conclusions. There's no sort of economic effect conclusions of it. So it's technicalities. Economic sort of analysis, interesting, Lisa, great start. I totally agree with this. Well, so the, is, this basically, is this basically a crisis of leadership? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, yeah. I mean, maybe, but, but it's possible that the deck of cards handed here is unplayable because it's America and China, right? But it, I mean, yeah. But what's the consequence then? I mean, honestly, what is the relevance then of the IMF <laughs> if you have a situation where they're not taking a policy stance, they're not calling people out, they're not creating a vigorous oh, they debate are. at the beginning? They're calling out the UK. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay. That's, that's Which, what's, you know, yeah. and, and a lot of people in the UK, for obvious reasons, are very upset by it. 
Now, I think, Eric, we can sit here and agree that some of the policy issues of the UK quite rightly needed to be criticised over the last 10 years, and we can find some common ground there. But why are they so comfortable going after the United Kingdom? And then when Chair Powell walks around here, it's like, yeah, don't say anything, you know, it's fine. There was no failure there. You know, we can't talk about that. What is that about? Yeah, it's about power, right? And, and who you want to please, right? It's, uh, and, and, and they haven't at least, at this stage, been willing to step up. I'm back in the in the in the, debt, in the Latin American debt crisis. Delorier today, still in his high 90s, would tell you stories about how he walked down the street to the Treasury and and according to him, at least, worked with them and, and made things happen. We don't quite see this now. I think. So what's the consequence? Well, the 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 easy consequence is that this institution and the World Bank will be on the back seat and not in the driver's seat if they even will be in the car. Right. This is the issue. Right. It's, uh, this is the, the world has moved on in a right. very dramatic way. I, I think <clears throat> the 30 years of globalization believe where monetary or sorry, where economic policy was set by sort of the ideas that we economists right. believe in or free trade and these sort of things. That's not there anymore. It's the security apparatus or agencies right. who have taken over. And maybe that's real life, and that's just what it is. But the result of that is right. that economic policy is not in the driver's seat anymore. Uh, and this is just they're not talking about it. Let me dovetail Gorgieva a week ago with a stunning five-year view with some of the zeitgeist this morning. And, and that would be a study of nominal GDP. You are the optimist, but can you frame out a reduced real GDP along with a reduced inflation? Yeah, you can. I mean, this is sort of an economics argument that that is based on the base case. And and when I talked to a staffer here, and he defended what they've done, he says that in the in the publication is that you have fundamentally to to articulate a base case. The problem is that there are so many risks around it that one of them is bound to happen. But I think the problem is bigger still because I think the whole narrative of economic policy making. And who runs the show today has changed, or is changing. It's always changed now, and this is not. So then we can, yeah, we can talk about that growth. Maybe global growth is going to be 2.8 or 2.7 percent, and maybe the the neutral rate. Yeah, it's going to come down a little bit, and the central bankers don't like it, right? And they kind of think, oh, now we want to tighten monetary policy. That's a sideshow. It's a sideshow. It's not the real story in the real world. The clients we talk to, European corporates, other corporates, are like. This is not what they talk about. This is inflation is coming down, and yes, we can discuss whether it's 25 basis points, one or twice, or whatever. Yeah, that's not the real story. In can I get opinion. to the most important question of the morning? What was better, the eight-dollar Stratatella in Washington D.C. or the three-euro Stratatella back in <laughs> back in Milan? Which one? Oh, it was on. it was very good the one I had yesterday. I have to say, but most of it landed on the sidewalk. <laughs> Have you not seen that tweet? It's a great tweet from Aaron earlier this week. He said this, greetings from the IMF spring meetings in DC, $8 for a Stratatella ice cream, which is almost as good as the one you get in Milan. What went wrong? Did the Fed allow US inflation to run away? <laughs> then raising questions about your dollar. Eric, this was great. Eric, thank, thank you. you. Great way to end this. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday, starting at 7 a.m. Eastern. On Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.